Pastor Corey here with Heights Church. Thank you for listening to our sermon podcast. If you would like more information about Heights Church, simply go to weareheights.org or follow us on our Facebook page. If you're looking to get plugged into a church, feel free to reach out to us via our website by simply clicking contact, and we will help you find a similar church in your area. Hope the podcast serves you well, and thanks for tuning in. king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. But I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you. So I delivered you out of his, land, of his hand, and you went over to the Jordan and came to Jericho. And the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites, and I gave them into your hand. And I sent the hornet before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites. It was not by your sword or by your bow. I gave you a land on which you had not labored, and cities that you had not built, and you, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of vineyards and olive orchards that you did not plant. Now therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. Put away the gods that your father served beyond the river and in Egypt, and serve the Lord." And if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods your fathers served in the region beyond the, the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Then the people answered, Far be it from us that we should forsake the Lord to serve other gods. For it is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up from the land of Egypt out of the house of slavery and who did the, those great signs in our sight and preserved us all preserves preserved us in all the way that we went and among all the peoples through whom we passed and the lord drove out before us all the peoples the amorites who lived in the land therefore we will also serve the lord for he is our god but joshua said to the people you are not able to serve the lord for he is a holy god he is a jealous god he will not serve your transgressions or your sins if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. And the people said to Joshua, No, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, You are witnesses against yourselves that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, We are witnesses. He said, Then put away your foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, The Lord our God will serve and his voice we will obey. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day and put in place statutes and rules for them at session. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God. And he took a large stone and set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to all the people, Behold, this stone shall be a witness against us, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he has spoke, that he spoke to us. Therefore, it, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance. You guys can take a seat. So what do we do with all of that? Huh? Good morning. Oh, 
There he is. Hey, let's try it one more time. One, Emily, thank you. Lot to read, lot to get through today. Uh, two, let me give you a, a welcome. So, welcome, thanks for being here. Uh, Heights Community, my name is Corey. I'm one of the pastors uh, on staff, and so I'm excited to get to be your teaching pastor for this week here at Heights. We're, we're about uh, three things. That's gospel, community, and mission. And the primary way that we make disciples is through what we call missional community. And so uh, if you're not um, familiar with what missional community means, don't worry about it. We're going to talk about it every week, every conversation. We're going to constantly be inviting you into it. Uh, Dave is gonna, pastor Dave is going to talk a little bit of, in a little bit about something we have going on fresh uh, in our MCs that we want to invite you to. We're also uh, about God's Word. And so we preach straight through books of the Bible, uh, exegetically or expository. Expository preaching is what that's called, and we're, uh, I have the incredible opportunity this week uh, to close out for you the final chapter of Joshua before we start Judges next week. And so uh, if you've not been with us, we've been doing a series called Lest We Turn, and we've been looking at what happens um, specifically in Israel, what happened when they turned to God, as well as what has happened when they've turned from God. And the past few times that I've got to preach, I've used the same big idea for this narrative, which is my life for me versus my life for him or my life uh, for you. And so, Carrie, if you could throw that up for me as a way of reminder. And what I've meant by this, if you've not been uh, rolling with us throughout this series, lest we turn, is there's really uh, two ways to go about following God, okay? Uh, You can follow God to get God, which would be my life for you or my life for him, or you can follow God to get the gifts of God, And so if you're a Christian in the room, right, you really have two options if you're following the Lord. You can follow him from a really selfish intent that says, hey, I just kind of want your stuff. Or you can follow him from a place of complete and total and utter submission that says, I just want you. I just want to be in your presence. We've seen both of these play themselves out in the book of Joshua. And so this week, I think we can continue with the same big idea as we look at chapter 28. And then next week, we continue in the series, Lest We Turn, But we'll pick up in the next book, which is the book of Judges. And we're really going to see in that book, we're like really oddly, weirdly excited to preach all the death and destruction of Judges, aren't we? Can I get an amen from, yeah, it's coming, okay? So if you're new and you come here in three weeks, you're going to think, what is wrong with this church? And we're going to say nothing. We just preach straight through books of the Bible, amen? We're going to get it. It's going to be awesome. Next week, we will start Judges. Uh, It's pretty, it's going to be difficult, but not initially Here's what I want you to see today. I've got so much to cover in very, very little time uh, to get it done. It's going to feel like drinking out of a fire hydrant. There's an echo. Is that me? Do I need to do something different? Okay. I'm going to keep running with it. You guys fix it. God is going to remind Israel. Here's what's going to happen. God is going to remind Israel, here's what I've done for you. And then he's going to remind, he's going to show them, here's how you've responded, present tense. This is how you've responded to me. And then Joshua's going to set up this monument that we just heard Emily read about, and he's going to say, but there's future grace for you, even in the midst of your depravity. There's future grace. So there's three simple points. Throw them up for me, please. Past grace, right? This is what I've done, God is going to say. And then Joshua's going to speak, and he's going to say, there's present grace. There's something for you right now. God is going to be gracious to you right now in the midst of your idolatry. And then future grace. There is a future grace that we have got, we get to be partakers of right this very moment. One big idea, three simple points. You guys ready to hit it? Let's hit it. Everybody say hey to social media. Hey, social media, we see you. I'm not going to address you. 
Uh, by the end of this, you might not even be able to see me because we're going to get censored, so it's fine. So past grace, let's start with that. Past grace, Joshua 28, uh, verse 1. Here we go. Ready? Okay, me and Chris Wolf. Joshua gathered all the tribes of Israel to Shechem and summoned the elders, the heads, the judges, the officers of Israel, and then they presented themselves before God. So I know Emily just read all this, but I'm going to make sure to read it all to you again. So let's stop here. This is monumental, what's happening in the text. Okay, this is what's called covenant language. You have to do a little bit of what's called covenant theology to understand what's, what's happening here. So I'll, I'll hit on it briefly for you. Uh, this is the same place that God established his covenant with Father Abraham. This is also the same place where God established his covenant with Jacob whenever he says, I will give you, what was the promise? Do you remember? I will give you land, I will give you people, I'm going to send a Messiah. Do you remember that? I made you say it with me. Land, people, Messiah. Land, people, Messiah. Land, people, Messiah. And so in this same place now, the people are gathering together under this one promise. This just one promise, not multiple promises. Just one covenant, one promise, but then there are covenants that exist throughout the history of Israel where God is reminding the people of his faithfulness to them. Does that make sense to you? Let me illustrate it for you. So this weekend, uh, we will have gotten to celebrate two weddings. I got to do a wedding uh, yesterday, and then David's going to get to do a wedding here later on today. And in marriage, when you think about a marriage, you think about a wedding, it's a covenant. Okay, that word means promise. What you're doing is you're coming together, you're promising to be with one another. In my short tenure as a pastor, in my very brief career here, I've got to do two what's called vow renewals um, for the Jeffersons and also for the Clarks. So thank you for allowing me to partake in that. When the Clarks and the Jeffersons come together, I'm glad you're sitting in the service so everyone can look at you, see you. (laughs) When the Clarks and the Jeffersons come together to do a vow renewal, what they are saying is we're already in covenant. We're already married to one another. We've already made a promise to one another. Now on this day of this vow renewal, we're simply coming together with a cloud of witnesses around us to say we're going to continue being faithful to one another. We've learned a few things along the way. Some things didn't go the way we thought they were, and some things went really, really well. And so in that, we are covenanting together to continue pressing forward to promise. The promise to one another still stands. We're just renewing our vow. We're renewing our covenant. Does that make sense? Okay, so that's what's happening in the text. It's not a new promise. It's not a completely new covenant. Rather, Joshua, and more importantly, God, is calling the people together. And he's saying, do you remember the promises I gave to Abraham and to Jacob? I'm faithful. And then he's going to get into it in a moment. Here's how faithful I have been to you. And he's going to remind them again and again and again. As I said yesterday when I got to officiate a marriage, the moment we stop saying I do in marriage is the very moment that marriages begin to fail. The moment we stop saying I do. Every day we wake up and say I do. Every moment I do. Every hour sometimes I do. Every minute and second sometimes we have to say I do. I'm in. And in the text today, that's what we're going to see. God is saying, look at my past grace. I'm in. I'm all in on this thing. I do. Here's how I said it, and here's how I proved it again and again and again. So let me read it to you. Let me continue reading then. Verse 2, Joshua says, verse 2, Carrie, Joshua said to all the people, 
Thus says the Lord. So the God is speaking through Joshua, the God of Israel. Long ago, your fathers lived beyond the Euphrates, Terah, the father of Abraham and of Nahor, and they served other gods. Not me, other gods. Verse 3, then I took your father Abraham, boom, plucked him out from beyond the river and led them through all the land of Canaan and made his offspring many. I gave him Isaac, and Isaac I gave Jacob and Esau, and I gave Esau the hill country of Seir to possess, but Jacob and his children went down to Egypt. And so let's pause, look up here. Right away, okay, God is speaking, and he's saying, do you remember what I've done? And in just four verses, God sums up 38 chapters of Genesis. You're like, why can't you do the same, you know? <laughs> I'm not God, okay? Just have his word, Okay. But he says what? God, through Joshua, calling the people to experience his grace, his mercy. Do you remember how I treated your fathers? Do you remember what I did with Abraham and Jacob and Isaac, the patriarchs of the faith? Do you remember what I did to them? What was he doing? Immediately reminding them of the grace, his grace, his promise. That covenant moment, those covenant moments in time. Verse 5, let's continue reading. And I sent Moses and Aaron, and I plagued Egypt with what I did in the midst of it. And afterward, now the language shifts here. Listen, the language shifts. And afterwards, what do you say? I brought who out? You out. Okay, so it's not in theory anymore. It's, he's moving from theory, from, histor- from history, from campfire stories to you. You experienced this. I brought you out. Why is that important? Because he's saying this is about you now. The audience that would have been standing in front of God would have been um, the ones who were actually in the desert, wandering for 40 years. They would have been the ones, the young men, the older men, who would have been fighting these battles for the Lord and conquering tribe after tribe after tribe to get the land that was promised to them as the people of God that was promised to them. So he's saying, like, this is experiential. You have experienced this. Okay, so he's transitioning. That's important to us. Not just the God of old, but your God. He said, I brought you out. Now I'm going to read all this, verse 6 through 13. It says this. Listen to the language. Then I brought your fathers out of Egypt, and who? You came to the sea, and the Egyptians pursued your fathers with chariots and horsemen to the Red Sea. Verse 7. And when they cried to the Lord, he put darkness between who? You and the Egyptians, and made the sea come upon them and cover them. And your eyes, present, your eyes saw what I did in Egypt. They were actually there, and you lived in the wilderness a long time. Then I brought you to the land of the Amorites who lived on the other side of the Jordan. They fought with you, not your fathers, not someone in history. They fought with you, and I gave them into your hand, and you took possession of their land, and I destroyed them before you. Then Balak, the son of Zippor, king of Moab, arose and fought against Israel, and he sent and invited Balaam, the son of Beor, to curse you. That's Numbers 22 through 24. We don't have time to get in that, but I would not listen to Balaam. Indeed, he blessed you and said, so I delivered you out of his hand. Who did he deliver? Them. And you went over to the Jordan and came to Jericho, and the leaders of Jericho fought against you, and also the Amorites, the Perizzites, the Canaanites, the Hittites, the Girgashites, the Hivites, and the Jebusites. Somebody say, come on, pastor. And I gave them into your hand. Who? I gave them into your hand. 
And I sent a hornet. It's like he sent the spirit, a spirit of fear before you, which drove them out before you, the two kings of the Amorites, which we've read about and preached on in this series so far. It was not by your sword or your bow alone is what he's saying, but I did this for you. And then verse 13, I gave you a land, part of the promise, right? People and Land. This is the Savior speaking to them. I gave you a land on which you had not labored in cities that you had not built, and you dwell in them. You eat the fruit of the vineyard. He's saying present tense right now. You dwell in them right now. You eat the labor. Or you, you didn't have to labor. You eat from the vineyards and the orchards that you did not plant. What's God saying? I did all of this for you. Why? Because I said I would. Because I made a promise to Abraham and I made a promise to Jacob that I would create an, an eternal people, an eternal kingdom, because he is, in fact, the savior of his people. And so he's saying in this kind of vow renewal, this covenant renewal, he's saying, look at what I've done for you. Look at the mercy that I've given to you. Look, look at the grace that's been bestowed upon you for hundreds and hundreds of years. You're the recipients of that grace, Israel. What's beautiful about this is that the, the way that this is actually written in the Hebrew is that of like a warlord treaty. And so what would happen during their time is just like God went through and conquered all these tribes and villages and taken out all these people and redistributed all the land to Israel, warlords would do this. And they would come and they would conquer village after village after village. And what the warlord would do is he would stand with the elders of that village that he had just conquered with dead bodies lying all over the place, dead babies lying all over the place. And he would say, here's what I have done. I've conquered you. I've conquered you. I've conquered you. I've destroyed this. I've destroyed that. Now worship me. Be my servants. This is written the exact same way that a warlord would do it, but the layout, while the layout is the same, the language here, the heart behind the message is not a message of defeat and fear, but of grace and mercy. He's saying, I'm the warlord that conquers, no one else, and I do it for you, ultimately for his namesake, but to establish a people and a land as the Savior who's going to create all of that for eternity. Does that make sense? It's really beautiful to read, isn't it? It's really cool. I'm the only one. Maybe someone on Facebook, you can, you're just as quiet as they are. Just put some stuff in the comments. It'll be fine. Why is that so beautiful, Pastor? It's just so, because in this moment, church, the invitation for grace and mercy that's been given to Israel is also the same invitation that's been given to you. Like, this is not just the story of Israel, church. This is your story. This is not just Israel's history. This is your history. This is our history as Christians. That we get. This is not just the God of Israel. This is your God. This is not just his victory. Like, this is your victory. Right? It's not just his, like, he's talking to Israel, yes, but God's word has been given to us so that we can look back, no matter what season we're in, COVID or no COVID, or an incredible season of oppression or depression or anxiety or frustration or stress, or maybe it's a season, man, where you're screaming from the mountaintops because everything is rocking and rolling in your life, and yet, regardless, you can look back at Joshua, the whole book of Joshua, and you can say, man, that's my God, and that's my victory, and that's my grace, and God has done all of that, ultimately for his glory, yes and amen, but to earn me, 
to invite me into this historical narrative. He has accomplished this for me. That's why it's beautiful. You see, we just flip through the pages or do it as a daily devotional, and it begins to lose meaning. But there's an incredible amount of mercy and grace that God has revealed all throughout history, listen, that is good for our spirits right now, right now in this moment. So he says, look at the past grace that I've accomplished for you. Now we move into present grace. Now like a good leader, Joshua understands, just as we understand as leaders and Christians in general in this room, this truth is compelling enough for some of you. It was compelling enough for some of Israel, right? But there are still many of which who would profess to be a God-fearing Jew, or in our case, a God-fearing Christian, and they hear these truths, and it's still just not enough. Like There's still some form of idolatry that they're clinging to. They hear this truth and are saying, yes and amen, my life for you. You have been all in. Your life has been for me in this moment. We still turn and we say, no, 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 not my life for you, not my life for him, my life for me. I'm going to cling hold to some of these idols. This is exactly what was happening in the camp of Israel. And so the voice changes. We enter into present grace, second point. The voice changes from God's voice to Joshua's voice. And so God says here, here's what I've done, here's what I've done. Listen, here's what I've done. And now Joshua says this, how are you going to respond? I prayed all week that this portion of the text would hit as heavy for you as it sits in the scriptures. Just prayed all last night. God, your word is living and active. God, may it actually cut through the bone and marrow of our souls this morning. God says, this is what I've done, abundant amount of grace. Joshua says, how are you going to respond? Listen, this is a question that every single person in this room, whether you profess faith in Jesus or not, or whether you're viewing online or not, you need to consider right now, how will you respond? How will you respond to the grace and to the mercy of Jesus. Listen, the text demands a response right now. I don't demand that response. The Bible does. How will you respond? Listen, verse 14. Here are the expectations. Now, therefore, fear the Lord and serve him in sincerity and in faithfulness. If you're going to fear a warlord, fear this one. Put away the gods of your fathers that your fathers served beyond the river and in Egypt. Listen, and serve the Lord. And so Joshua, right now, while he's speaking, right, there's, again, professing, God-fearing Jews, listen, with false idols still in their tents, in the midst of everything that we've seen in Joshua. Like, think about that. In the midst of a prostitute coming to faith and being a part of redeeming Israel, people are still worshiping trinkets in their tents. As folks are circling the walls of Jericho, doing nothing, just being obedient to the Father, some of them are doing it with trinkets behind their backs. Like they're worshiping the false gods of their culture and of their land. Like little trink- like I got to go to Cabo, like little trinkets I had to buy for my kids that ended up broken as soon as we got home. That's what they would have had, little stones, little stick figurines that they will later use to fuel a fire to keep themselves warm because in Judges, all hell's going to break loose on them because of this, because of what's happening right now. So Joshua's setting up the book of Judges for us right now. Like in the midst of it, it would be complete 
it would be asinine for me to think that the church is not responding the same way that Israel responded in this moment. It would be ludicrous of me to think that there are not, there, every single professing Christian in here isn't holding some trinket behind their back. Idolatry has ran rampant in the church because it's ran rampant since the garden. And so today, the scriptures, for you, whether professing Christian or not, demands that you ask and answer the question, how will I respond to God's grace now, right now? Not when I leave, not when I decide to get my act together, not whenever later today when I have to do X, Y, and Z and fulfill my calendar obligations right now. That's what the text demands. Are you tracking? And some would say, no, you don't understand. I've professed total faith in God. I'm, I'm just not going to hand my children over to him. No, I completely profess faith in God. I'm, just, I'm not going to hand like, my marriage over to him, though. We're in a tiff right now. I'm not going to pray about it. Sure, I profess faith in God, but I'm not going to give him my finances, you know? I profess faith in God, but I'm not going to sift through all the demands of culture that are pressed upon me and actually look through God's word and see what, is, what does God's word have to say about all the things that are taking place in, in culture, like cancel culture, or progressive theology, or the desire for equality, or all the other isms that run at us. I'm not going to surrender those things to him. For the conservative in the room, I'm not going to surrender my conservative theology to him because it can be just as damning as your progressive theology, right? right? There's a level of idolatry that exists in this room that we see in the scriptures, and it has ran rampant in the church. It has ran rampant. To cling to anything equally as close as you profess your relationship with God to be is not just idolatry. It is evil. That's what the text says. Verse 15. And if it is evil in your eyes, professing Jewish God followers, God fears, if it is evil in your eyes to serve the Lord, listen to me, choose this day whom you will serve. Is it clear enough? Choose this day right now whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers served in the region beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites in whose land you dwell but as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. One of the most famous verses, oh my gosh, how many tattoos? How many coffee mugs? How many t-shirts? Pinterest has made a killing. Home Goods has made a killing, right? Like, how many frames have your wives bought and put on the wall? As for me and my house, it's in the bathroom. As for me and my house, we'll serve the Lord, right? One of the most famous verses, and yet I think, I think rather we should change out all, that, all of that and we should back up and we should put on there instead, choose this day whom you will serve. I mean, it is a good declaration. As for me and my house, yes and amen. But listen, every single day, every moment, every minute, every second, we are being invited to say I do again. And we have to say, who, who, who are we going to say it to? Choose this day whom you will serve, whether the gods of your fathers and the regions beyond the river or the gods of the Amorites right now in the culture in which you dwell. But as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Yes and amen. And I pray that that is our response. But listen, that response does not come separated from choose today who you'll serve. Those two things go 
together. I'm going to read a large chunk of scripture for you, verses 16 through 24. Listen to this. Five different times, listen, five times Israel says, we will serve the Lord. And in Judges, we know that's not true. It's not true. Verse 16, then the people answered, far be it from us that we would forsake the Lord and serve other gods. There's one. For it is the Lord who's done all that he said he would do. It is the Lord our God who brought us and our fathers up out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery, and who did great signs in our side and preserved us, talking first person, us, and all the way that he went, that we went. And among all the peoples through whom they passed, and the Lord drove out from before us all the peoples, the Amorites who lived in the land. Therefore, we will also serve the Lord, for he is our God. Second time, but Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord. Why? Because he's holy and he's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions of your sins. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, he's not going to forgive you. Why? Because they're not worshiping him. Because they're not submitted to him. They're still submitting the trinkets hidden behind their backs to cultural idols. They're still submitting to other gods. And so he says, you cannot serve this God. You cannot serve two masters. Have you heard the text? You are unable. You are not able to serve the Lord for he is holy God. He is jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions of your sins. Listen here. Hear the warning. If you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then it cannot be any clearer. Then he will turn and do you harm and consume you after having done you good. He's saying he is good and gracious. Do you remember the past? Do you remember everything that he's done for you? It's all good. He's done all of this to earn you, to gain you, to keep you, to invite you in. But if you do not respond in faith to him, he can do nothing else for you. You're still with me. And what do they say? And the people said to Joshua, no, but we will serve the Lord. Then Joshua said to the people, all right, you're the witnesses against yourself on this one, that you have chosen the Lord to serve him. And they said, we are our witnesses, fourth time. We're in, we're all in. And yet we have the book of Judges coming. He said, all right, then, you're all in. It's like he said, all right, bet. We'll see. Then put away the foreign gods that are among you, talking still as like a pastor to his people. Why have you not already burned the trinkets? Why are we still talking about this? If you really understood what God has done for you, why would you cling to this idol? Then put away the foreign gods that are among you and incline your heart. Remember, sincerity of faith is what he says. Incline your heart to the Lord, the God of Israel. And the people said to Joshua, fifth time, the Lord our God, we will serve, and his voice we will obey. Five times in this one dialogue. The people say we will. And Joshua still is like, why are you already not setting these things ablaze? No, 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 we'll get to it. And then Judges is coming. Joshua says, serves the God, right? Serve the God. If you want to serve any warlord, you want to serve any conqueror, this is the warlord. This is the conqueror to serve. He's been gracious to you. In this moment, in the midst of your idolatry, he's still inviting you into covenant. Listen to me. This is like the Clarks or Jeffersons doing a vow renewal, and in the midst of one of them, in the midst of one of them committing adultery, them looking at each other and saying, I'm all in. Do you understand the weight of that in covenant? Like, while they would be cheating on one another in the moment, church, like, right there in front of us, one of them looking at the other and saying, I'm in. I'm in. In the midst of it. That's what's happening in the text. That's how heavy it is. That's how dark the hearts and our hearts of Israel are. 
in the midst of it, calling them to marriage, calling them to be reminded, and then in the midst of that, adultery taking place. Now do you feel the weight of it? That's what's happening in the text. And God is saying through Joshua, there is grace upon grace and mercy upon mercy for you. The religious heart, all they hear is warlord and destruction and and conquering, and they miss out on the beauty of the gospel in this moment. I have saved you regardless of your response to me. He's just inviting them to respond. That is mercy and grace, church, unfathomable mercy and grace that has been given to them. The warning for the church for us comes from Hebrews chapter 6, if you could put it up for me, Carrie. It says, for it is impossible, not improbable, church, it is impossible in the case of those who have once been enlightened, who have tasted the heavenly gift, who have shared in the Holy Spirit, who have tasted the goodness of the word of God and the powers of the age to come, and then have fallen away. It is impossible to restore them again to repentance. Why? Since they are crucifying once again the Son of God to their own harm and holding him up in contempt. What is Hebrews? This is post-Jesus, post-resurrection. What is the writer of Hebrews saying? He's saying it's impossible for those who have tasted, who have seen, who have set in a service like this, who've set in a mission community gathering, who's been in an incredible counseling conversation, who's had an emotional response, who's raised their hand during worship and hidden behind their back some trinkets, some idolatrous trinket that they're choosing to worship. He says it's impossible to restore them to Jesus Christ. Why? Because they're looking at the cross and they've never actually been all in. They've never actually professed a sincerity of faith. You cannot redeem someone who has not experienced salvation, correct? And so what they've done, what he's saying, the writer of Hebrews, and what God is saying in Israel is we've looked at the cross and we've looked at the resurrection and we see all this grace and all this mercy. And yet with one hand, we say amen and hallelujah. And with the other hand, we say, I'm going to hold on to this trinket a little bit longer. I'm going to keep this idol just a little bit longer. I'm going to continue to serve and worship my children instead of the creator. I'm going to continue to serve and worship my spouse instead of the creator. Serve and worship my finances instead of the creator. Man, but for, but for those who have repented and turned to Jesus Christ as Lord and Savior, there is grace upon grace even in the moments of idolatrous worship. Because just because we profess faith in Jesus doesn't mean we turn to that trinket every now and again, don't we? Right? Man, present grace given to us through the finished work of Christ. What is happening here in the text is that the culture had made its way into Israel. Israel went to conquer tribes, and instead the culture began to conquer Israel. And we know this because judges is coming. It's coming. It's it's not there explicitly. It's implicitly because we know the Bible. The culture of his time had made its way into the lives of those who were supposed to be following God. Likewise, man, the church has allowed the exact same thing to happen. I'm reading a book right now called The Drama of Scripture, and it is blowing me up, dude. Not much humor in this sermon, partially because of that book and partially because the text sets the tone, okay? I can, I can make you laugh. You know that, right? I've done that plenty of times. Today's not the day. Like, our number one area of idolatry is Western culture as a whole. That's the number one trinket that we worship. And this book I'm reading refers to it not just as a trinket, but as a raging river just hitting the church. Not a lazy river, a raging river. Put that on Facebook. 
raging river, not lazy river, and it is chaotic, and it does not make any sense. This is not a God of chaos that we serve, but there is a culture of chaos that we love to serve. Just look at your screen time on your phone. Well, what is Western culture? What would that be? What is this chaos? What is this raging river? Let's see if we can't get censored from Facebook, shall we? It's every ism that ever comes at you in every moment of every day. It's sexism, it's racism, it's misogynistic manhood, it's um, feminism, it's literally every single movement and every single flag that could ever be waved being, being in your face and begging for your attention and making you feel simultaneously defeated yourself because you feel like there's no hope for anyone. What is Western culture? It's having to be a professional scholar of every piece of subject matter that could ever exist and at the same time, if you cannot speak into the thing that I'm most passionate about, we're no longer friends. Defeating. What else is it? It is uh, saying you be you on social media and then providing you a filter. Chaos. What else is it? it is, um, what else do we have? It's, it's, uh, it's, having a, a, it's a false sense of inclusivity that comes through a like button. It is uh, cancel culture silencing any form of independent or unique thought because it's different than yours. Chaos. You still tracking with me? Right? If you disagree with me, you cease to exist to me, yet we are a culture that is inclusive. Chaos. It's filling calendars with more things than we could ever imagine completing in our lifetimes and then complaining simultaneously about how stressed and anxious we are and taking it out on our very children that we planned all the events for. It's chaos. That's Western culture. It's claiming to desire a desire for unity while simultaneously pushing people to self-isolate and calling it independence. And yet, anxiety and depression and suicide and all the alcohol-isms and drug addictions are higher than they've ever been. It's chaos. It's literally killing us. It's the media pressing two extremes, extreme left and extreme right, because there's absolutely no room for the libertarian or the moderate, even though that's the majority of our country. It's chaos. It's okay to be in copious amounts of debt while simultaneously keeping all that debt to yourself for fear of judgment from a culture that's supposed to be so inclusive and loving. It's chaos. It's, a, it's, a, it's okay to sleep with whoever, whenever, however, because you just need to do you, and you need connection. Yet people feel completely, I mean, in disarray. Loss of hope, loss of identity. It, it's a me too culture. Simultaneously with a top 40 chart with billions of views of songs that celebrate men exercising dominance over women through sexual exploitation. Shall we continue or have I made my point? It makes no sense, our culture, makes no sense, and yet we just, mm, that's so good. Same thing I saw yesterday, but I can't get off the phone. Look at your screen time, and tell me you don't have trinkets in your tents as well. It is, every, it is a gym in Cabo at 6.30 in the morning where the walls say, you're the master of your own destiny, believe in yourself, your body is your only home, uh, the only way to succeed is through hard work. That's Western culture. It is everywhere, man, and that is our number one idol as a whole country and, unfortunately, as a church. The raging rivers of Western culture have not just hit the church a little bit. They have swept up much of her, and she's just beginning to look like the waters around her. 
This feels really hopeful, Pastor. Thank you. (laughs) So what do we do? Verse 19, let's continue. But Joshua said to the people, you're not able to serve the Lord, right? For he is a holy God. He's a jealous God. He will not forgive your transgressions or your sins. He's saying, if you've turned, if you forsake the Lord and serve foreign gods, then he will turn and do harm and consume you after having done, done you well, done you good. Listen, God cannot save those who have not turned to him in professed faith. God cannot save those who have not sought out the redeeming work of Jesus Christ in their place as their substitute. So, so what do we do? Here's what we do. What does this look like? I was talking through this with David. He didn't even remember, so it must have been a total Holy Spirit moment. He said, man, you got to talk about what it means to have a sincere faith. Right? If we're going to hit them with this raging river, we got to at least stow them a life reserve, right? And I was like, all right, sounds, that makes, I'd like to leave them in the river, but okay. <laughs> Judges will pull you back in over and over and over again. Uh, so what do we do? What does it mean to have a sincere faith? Well, we did, we got to go to Cabo uh, last week. We were supposed to be there five months ago in COVID, so we didn't go. So, um, but what we said, Andrew and I, my wife and I said, hey, we're going to do a week of yes for our kids, right? Parents spend a lot of time saying no. So we were like, we're going to say yes. Uh, for example, Josiah had 15 smoothies a day, strawberry banana smoothies. Had so many smoothies. Uh, Andrea said, babe, if you have any more smoothies, you're going to turn into one. Josh, Josiah said, then I would drink myself. Right there. It's a good illustration for idolatry right there. It's perfect. A week of yes, a week of yes. I was thinking about that. What does it mean to have a sincere faith? Listen, total surrender, total surrender of everything to life, a sincerity of faith to a holy and righteous God, listen, is not a week of yes, it's every day, yes. Choose this day whom you will serve. It is moment to moment, minute to minute, hour to hour, day to day, week to week, month to month, year to year, decade to decade, until you're with him, standing up every day and every moment saying, I'm in. A week of yes. Yes, you can have my kids. I get to do premarital counseling with a couple who are praying right now, God, if you don't want us to get married, reveal that. If you don't want us to get married, in June, it's coming. If you don't want us to get married, reveal that. That's That's a sincerity of faith. If you don't want us to be in covenant, show us, because we need you to be enough. That's faithfulness. That's what it looks like to have a sincere faith that is every day, moment to moment, taking all the things that you care way more about than you care about Jesus redeeming work in your place, and you're saying, yes, you can have that. Yes, you can have my job. Yes, you can have my money. Yes, you can have the way I think about culture. Yes, you can have my theology that I put on a pedestal. Yes, you can have my marriage. You can have my sex life. You can have all of these things. Yes, you can have them. And then what it looks like, what happens in that moment, the moment we start saying yes, is we have this raging river of full of copious amounts of idolatry coming at us. And, and what happens is we take God's word and we take the gospel, the good news of Jesus Christ, the reality that he lives a life you can't live, I can't live. He dies an innocent death that we all deserve to die. He resurrects the new life. He gives us hope and freedom in the gospel. And what happens, we take God's word and we take God's gospel and we take God's church and with our lives, we start to shove that mess into culture. And what happens? It becomes like a dam. Picture it with me if you need to. You have this raging river. How do you slow a raging river? You put a dam in there. This raging river comes, boom, hits the cross, hits the Bible, hits God's church with our lives. You hear me? And what happens on this side? 
Dude, it starts to filter out, right? It slows everything down. It sifts everything out. And so with the gospel in mind and God's word in hand and the church, like with arms linked together, we throw our bodies in that river. And we sift out the things in culture that are not good. Listen, I'm not saying culture is bad. You sound a heck of a lot like you are. <laughs> Listen, I'm saying there are aspects of culture that are not just damning, but they're evil. And it's our responsibility as the church, empowered by God's word, empowered by God's spirits, spirit, arm wrapped around one another to enter into that raging river and allow the gospel to sift out what needs to be redeemed versus what is redeemed. Is that clear? All right, look at somebody and say, culture's not bad. Like you mean it, okay? Like you mean it, okay? Listen, culture is beautiful. Culture is diverse. Culture reveals a beautiful expression of God the Father and his creation. But there are most certainly aspects in there that are horrendous to the church, that are simply not holy. Are we tracking? And so in that, then we have this future grace, 37 minutes. I'm over, I'm over two minutes and 19, 20, 21 seconds. So let's wrap it up. Future grace, last point. When we do this, when we shove God's word and the gospel in ourselves, we put ourselves into the culture, not allowing the culture to put all of itself into us. It's called syncretism. That's different. We have future grace. So Joshua, verse 25, Carrie. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day. So Joshua made a covenant with the people that day, a promise, another promise, continuation of the promise, and put in place his statutes and rules for them in Shechem. And Joshua wrote these words in the book of the law of God, and he took a large stone and he set it up there under the terebinth that was by the sanctuary of the Lord. And Joshua said to the people, Behold, this stone, as he's written on, this stone shall be a witness against us, something for us to look back to, for it has heard all the words of the Lord that he spoke to us. Therefore, it shall be a witness against you, lest you deal falsely with your God. So Joshua sent the people away, every man to his inheritance, that they had won for themselves or that God had won for them. That God had won for them. So just as Joshua knew the people were going to sin, were going to continue in idolatry, so also he, right, he knows like, that they're going to do that. Sinners sin. That's, that should have been the big idea. That would have been a good one too. He knows that they're going to turn against God. We have the book of Judges, so we know that they're most certainly going to turn against God. And yet, what he does is he gives here another measure of grace. He says, I'm going to put this stone here, this pillar here, this monument here outside of where you worship God. So every day that you pass by it, every time you see it, you can remember the past grace of God. You can remember the present grace of God. And you can remember that God, even in the midst of your sin and depravity, in the future, will continue to redeem you. You only need to profess faith in him. Not faith in the culture, not faith in other idols. And so how does that apply to us as first or 21st century Christians? Everything I just said about this dam in the waters. God doesn't just give us a stone, church. He gives us God's word. He gives us the people of God. And he most certainly gives us a cross with a resurrection that towers over history. I mean, it towers over history. Right? And so every day of our lives, we get to look at God's word. We get to look at the people of God. We most certainly then get to recall the gospel, that Jesus has done everything necessary to reverse the curse of sin, that Jesus lived a life that we will not be able to live, that Jesus allowed, listen, the raging waters of culture to blast against him on the cross to redeem every single aspect of sin that could ever be thought of. So if you're sitting there thinking, man, this feels cumbersome. This feels heavy. What am I supposed to do? I don't think I can do this. I would respond, you cannot do this alone. 
but man, but with God's people and God's word and with the gospel church. And he gives us everything we need to stand against these raging waters of Western culture and sift out what is good from what is not. And so stand with me and let's celebrate the gospel together as we take communion. Hopefully you were able to grab a communion cup on your way in. I'll be quick. Let me just read to you from 1 Corinthians. Remind you of God's faith and grace uh, his mercy. It says this, says, For I received from the Lord, Paul says, For I received from the Lord what I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus on the night when he had On the night when he was betrayed, he took bread, and when he had given thanks, he broke it and said, This is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same way also, he took the cup after supper, saying, The cup is the new covenant in my blood. Do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and you drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Verse 27, I don't usually read, but let me read it in light of where we're going or where we just went. Whoever therefore, listen, whoever therefore eats the bread... And drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty concerning the body and the blood of the Lord. Listen to me. The curses and the blessings from this covenant still stand. They still stand. And whenever we partake in communion as Christians, we look at that bread which represents Christ's body broken for us. We look at that cup which represents Christ's blood spilled in our place as our substitute. And we're reminded again of the curse and the blessing that Jesus becomes the curse of sin so that he could give us eternal blessings. And in that, the hope for communion, the reason we do it every week is that as you take communion, you repent of these little trinkets that you hide, you repent for dabbling in this raging water, you might actually be moved by the grace and mercy of your Savior. So with that in mind, then, let me invite you to repent, to confess the trinkets that you hide behind your back, and then dine and feast with the Lord. We pray all this in the Lord's name.